Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Tullock, Talking Writing's podcast manager, and this is the Talking Writing Podcast. In this week's episode, Neva Taliadin, our managing editor and community editor, interviews author Tuan Fan, author of the memoir Remembering Water, published by Hidden River Press. Tuan Fan was previously featured on the Talking Writing website with his essay From Saigon to Bataan to Ohio. This essay was the winner of the 2018 Talking Writing Prize for Personal Essay, which eventually became a chapter in Remembering Water. This week's bonus episode will be a reading of the chapter, My Father Returns, which details the lessons his father imparted to him and the story of their escape. Paid subscribers will be able to access this episode on Monday. From now until the end of the year, Donations and new subscriptions will be acknowledged by the Talking Writing Podcast and will receive a gift. Please find your subscription and donation options on this episode's Substack post. Thank you and enjoy the episode. So thank you for joining us today, Tuan. Thank you so much, Neva. It's great to be here. Right. And you're joining us from Saigon right now. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. It's uh, morning where I am. And I know it's evening where you are as well. Right. So I, right. Yeah. Yep. And first of all, congratulations on your newborn. Congratulations to you oh, and your thank wife. You. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. I saw in your Instagram post, the son has become a father. And in your book, Remembering Water, your father is one of my favorite characters. <laughs> I know this is a memoir. <laughs> But your father is a very, is a character. And so can you tell me a little bit about the sensations? Because it's, it's very recent that you had a newborn. So I know that's a lot of emotions, right? So can you tell me how you felt? Can, can you tell me more about how you felt as you transi- transitioned into fatherhood? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, helped me understand my father a little bit better in some ways and my mother as well through the process of having a newborn and raising a newborn. So yeah, it's been great. I mean, we're we're spending a lot of sleepless nights, but I think any parent will tell you that it's both so tiring, but absolutely worth it. I think, and I think that's where we're at. Our newborn is Liam. He's Liam Min and he's only, I guess he just passed the six weeks mark. So he's like six weeks and a half. Old. Yeah. Um, so you might hear him in the background. That's okay. We'll it see. still blows my mind how we discuss newborns, their ages as weeks and not in that years. At some point yeah. we get tired and say, oh, just years, like two years exactly. old or whatever. We've settled into who we are, right? We don't change really in terms of weeks, but they are they change so, so quickly. That's um, right. So it's a process of like enjoying and then making sure that you mark moments of where they are, even within these days, because they change daily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this has been a big year for you, right? First the book, and then your son. And I know it's incomparable, but like bringing a book into a world, into the world, right? Yeah. That's also like a labor of love. Definitely not the same as having a son or having a baby but yeah. almost <laughs> so um, i wanted to ask about first of all the the process that uh, of how you wrote this book we discussed earlier that this was from a contest this got published because it won the contest the panther creek nonfiction book award 
And so can you walk us through like how that happened, how you found out about the contest and everything? Sure. Well, I uh, took a year off at the time. This is 2017, I think. I took a year off from teaching, which is my sort of profession. And I was teaching and living in Hong Kong. And I took a sabbatical year to go back to Vietnam to write and complete a manuscript. I didn't know what form it would be in. It might even be a novel or fiction because I was writing a lot of short stories at the time. And then I came back, I took the year and I finished that year. And then I decided I would stay in Vietnam at the same time. But I had finished the manuscript by the end of that year. And I started to send it around to agents um, and not to, to much success because I think memoirs by people who aren't famous are really hard to sell uh, or to get an agent with. And I think with a lot of sort of literary agents rejection, I decided to send it to manuscript contests. So one of the contests that I sent it to was Hidden River Arts. They run manuscript contests. And my, I was the inaugural nonfiction manuscript and won that. And part of the award was that uh, it gets uh, publication. And of course, even after that, the sort of the gestation period or the pregnancy for the book continued on because of COVID and what lasted uh, for a while because it's, it made it really hard for Hidden River to to, to get everything together and lockdowns and so on, uh, all that craziness. So it wasn't until very recently in April that I was able to be out in the world and out in the world one month before my newborn came. So, <laughs> so for a while, I was just, I mean, should I place bets on whether or not the Liam would come out before remembering <laughs> Walker? So That's true. Yeah. And it's great in some ways like that, that delay helped yeah. me a little I, I actually made some significant revisions to to the manuscript, even mm. after having won it. I wanted to write more about the year in the refugee camps. So that was, it's, it's in the first third of the book. And that section was really quite developed as a result of this kind of COVID delay. Yeah. Um, and I know like we like jumped around here. And so I just wanted to come back for a second and talk about like what the book is about. So in the book, you jump back and forth telling the story of how basically for me, it's not just about the immigration story of how you came to America and how you dealt with the cultural struggle struggles was as much really not so much your story, but the story of the people around you, your mother and father and your uncle. And so that's what struck me so much about your memoir. It's not, it focuses more on character rather than the events, right? But that said, these are very significant events that happened in your life. And I'm wondering, like, I know you said that you wrote short stories about it and other essays. What made you leap towards the form of the memoir to tackle these stories and these topics? Yeah, <clears throat> I think that the memoir is quite flexible in that if you have a kind of centering theme or a couple of centering themes, then you can wrap around that stories and tales and for me it was partially the immigrant story what it meant to be in exile and also what it means to come back to the country that you were in exile for for a long time so to tell that story 
I think to do that justice and do it well, I think I needed to not just tell my story, but try to, as best I can, tell my mother's story, my father's and my uncle who took care of us when we were growing up, because they all had different immigrant stories, right? They all had different tales and relationships to the land that they were exiled from, that they escaped from, and then they came back to. So I'm glad that you brought that up and you took away that aspect of the book, because I think a lot of readers would just think of the of my story as the core, but I think in some ways I wanted it to parallel or be juxtaposed with my other family members and how they experienced it. Because as adults, like for my, my, my uncle, for example, who was away from the country at the last year, during the last years of the war, and couldn't come back to it because it ended very suddenly. And and he was in limbo and stuck in America. And his decision to stick around and never return, really, that was a really interesting way to juxtapose his story with my story as someone who has returned and, 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 and live here now. So exactly. it is about juxtaposition and the memoir allows that. The memoir allows for this kind of shifting and, and jumping back and forth between different kinds of narratives that tell a kind of central theme or idea. And I love memoir, by the way, like I, I, I really read a lot of memoirs. I think, like you said, it's a very flexible genre. And the treatment that you did for this book, what I got most from it, why I liked it so much is because, yes, you are the narrator, you are the central character, but you treated the story of your parents, your uncle, even your brother, and you used it to make them part of yourself. Like, basically, what I got from it is that you as a central character, which is true, you wouldn't be the character that you are without these people around you. And it is a, a non unconventional way of explaining yeah. why you think the way you do why you know how why you grew up the way you do or why you know your thoughts and your feelings about vietnam and the us like it meshes really well it's not just oh this is about my, my father's story my mother's story my story you use these stories to create the character the character that is you the narrator right and how so did you go ahead Go ahead. You can. I was gonna say, ask you, like, how did you decide to do that? Like, was this uh, a structure or was this a technique that you used to do in your short fiction that you experimented on, or did it come out because uh, owing to the structure of a memoir? Yeah, I think. Well, I'm struck by, and this is maybe because this is uh, the first long podcast with someone who's in the literary position of editing and having to read a lot of, or enjoying the reading of a lot of books, is that you're mentioning people in the story as characters. And I think that's true. I think for the readers that encounter the memoir, they do see these as characters, as figures in this kind of narrative arc. And I'm just struck by it because I, I, I'm just writing about them as family members and, and they're people that I know. Uh, and I realized myself that I am a character and I'm the narrator and character in, in the memoir. Um, and I think for me, I guess, in, in the writing of it and organizing and structuring it, I didn't necessarily have a set structure when I began. I just wanted, I, I had a, a goal in mind of excavating my past, talking to family members, particularly my mom, who I had, I guess, the easiest access to. 
but also just to write about people that that shaped that whole experience of living in America and then coming back here. And so I just started out writing those things. And a lot of them were smaller pieces. And then when it came time to organizing, structuring it, I had to try to find a way to layer it or a way to, as I mentioned before, juxtapose so that stories would make sense or that they would highlight and allow us to look at a particular idea in more detail, I guess. So for example, I think one chapter is we, we lost two cities, lovely ones, which is uh, a, a reference to a Bishop poem in that I use two cities, but, but really two characters as well, right? Dalat and Ho Chi Minh City, and then two members of my family and their relationship to home and to the place and the cities here in Vietnam. And I think that's how it worked. I think for me, it, it just made sense to tell those stories first and, and then see how it fit into the larger picture. I did have a lot, I had, did have to spend a lot of time trying to think it through and try to organize it. And I, I did have to jettison a few short pieces that I didn't feel like made sense within the grander arc of the memoir. That's right. And I really appreciate it because um, a lot of people or a lot of readers who don't read a lot of memoir think it's just memories, like a compilation of memories and then told chronologically or in a dramatic way or something, which is definitely not what a memoir is. Memoir is really like, it has a lot of insight and it's really made written for the reader as much as it is written for the author and the people that he includes in the memoir or wants to pay homage to, right? And so one thing that really struck me also in Remembering Water are the use of images, the use of literary techniques like images. And you use the metaphor of water or the image of water as bookends for your memoir. And did the idea for this book start from that or did it come later? It came later as I was writing and organizing drafts of it. So the you mentioned the bookends of water memories, and they were both part of the first chapter or the, the prologue-ish first mm. part, including the very last memory yeah. that the book. And I think it, it was near the very end. So actually, when I won the manuscript competition, I hadn't had that. And I didn't have that ending. Oh, I didn't okay. And part of the revision process uh, included me looking at the second memory and thinking, oh, actually, that would be a good one to end the memoir on. Because I think the image, and I guess, I, I, I don't know, but I won't spoil it, but I think the image of the water that kind of, that I wanted to end with is a good one because it, if it feels to me like it captures that sense of anxiety, displacement, as well as just the kind of boundlessness of of our experience as refugees in that moment. So I think I, I wanted to end it on that. And I wanted to begin the book on my very first memory, which is about following my father into water. So so I felt like it was a good bookend. Now the word water itself is also very packed in Vietnamese. So it stands for country, nation. So remembering water is in Vietnamese would be nhớ nước which would mean hunger or remembering one's country. Yeah, um, that's beautiful. Yeah, it works quite well in that sense. And I think I didn't want to actually have a translated edition because I think I just 
And anyone who's Vietnamese would understand that there's a kind of a play on the meaning of the words and the word water itself has a kind of richness already that Vietnamese speakers and Vietnamese readers would get. Yeah, it's a it's already a very rich image, but knowing that now like it's even more it's even more meaningful, which is great, right? And I wanted to talk about the first memory of water when you followed your father, right? So yeah. it's interesting. So we were talking a bit uh, a while ago about the difference between what you remember and what actually happened. Yeah. And this in the right at the beginning you tackled that, right? And so throughout the your conversations with your mom and your other family members, how much of the things you remember were like right, quote unquote right, and which yeah. ones <laughs> did they say no that that didn't happen? Like how much of it was yeah. like that? Well, I think that it's all the memories that I have are right for me, right? I think they're they hold the kind of truth that I have that because it's even if they're wrong, even if they're inaccurate, even if they're incomplete, their incompleteness and their inaccuracies have informed who I am. And in some ways, my misremembering of things is an aspect of my own particular character. So there's a section, I think, where I mention my memory of a tennis court that was here that I spent a lot of happy times in as a kid. And I remember it as being pristine, just beautiful and well-kept and Years later in America, my dad showed me a picture of it, and it was so different from how I pictured it. It was run down, and, and it it looked, it just looked old. It had been many years, and it was during the 1980s, so the country was quite poor. But my incomplete or misremembering of the place shows me, at least, that place held a lot of beautiful memories for me. And so I remember it in this way. I remember it as being absolutely beautiful visually as well. And I think I want to celebrate that mistake in some ways. And I think that's I wanted to, to start the story and the memoir with that first memory that I have, because I remembered it in such a way. And it wasn't until starting to write the book that I actually checked in with my mom and my dad. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting, because they gave me the factual version, right? Because they were adults and they remember it with more detail. And they described how, oh, I followed my dad into the water, but I wasn't anywhere near the water. I was just observing him and I followed his motions, thinking that I was already there. And that's such a significant thing to me because it, my misremembering of it shows me so much about how I felt about my father, even that, at that age. Um, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. That's what I wanted to capture. And I wanted to capture the fallibility of memory, but its importance to identity as well, even just right away in the first couple of pages. Yeah. And how impression is just as much memory as the factual details of the event, right? Like how you felt, your impression. And I think something that every father's son dynamic would have, like your father was a hero, like a looming figure in your life. And now that you mentioned that you followed your father, it made me think of you You followed the motions of your father. It made me think like, I wonder if it has something to do with you as a kid and not having that concept of separateness yet. Yeah. Like you thought that, that you were your father 
And that's why you're remembering it that way. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something to that. And the idea that we're so bonded and so connected that there's never any kind of distance even, right? Yeah. That age. I know that even raising my newborn right now, we're almost like attached to the hip. Like we're so, we're, we're so close. Like we're, are, we can't ever leave him. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, so I wonder, I do wonder if newborns or infants have that sense that even as they're watching their parents from far away, that they're still imagining that they're right next to them. And that sense of like being coddled and being near that intimate sense of being with your parents. In some ways, I think that's what I wanted to capture as about as well. I mean, speaking of like incomplete and inaccurate memories, part of the boat escape for me was really quite lovely and pleasant. I know that's terrible to say. I know, yeah. <laughs> saying it, but it was for me because my parents were right there. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I still, it's a really interesting notion of like intimacy and misremembering. Yeah, and, and and that's one of the concepts that I really like that you tackled, right? And another, um, comparing that to another um, story that you have about your father that was, you know, very stark and, and surprising for you was when you and him, you saw each other again and you went to the pigeon lady. And yeah. then, yeah, you took the photo and then you looking at the photo, you realized just how old your dad had become. It was the first time that you realized how old, what was, well, I wanted to know, like, what was your father's reaction to, like, y- that you have your reflection for that part of the story, but how, when your father read it, I don't know if your dad read it, but if your father, re- no, he didn't read it. He hasn't read it. So he's ordered it and it's on arrival right now. Okay. But he hasn't read the memoir yet. I'm just very curious about what he would think about <laughs> what he would yeah. think about that that story, right? But you also discuss things like your mother's experience, the juxtapositions of your the juxtaposition of your mom's experience in Vietnam as, as somebody who wasn't who was dismissed repeatedly and wasn't able to really fully practice her profession and then coming to the U.S. and then being able to finally fulfill that dream. I, I, I know that in the memoir, you look at it from both the lens of you as a child and then comparing it to how you now realized what was going on as an adult, right? So yeah. can you talk more about that and how you reconciled those two impressions of your mother? Yeah, I think that <clears throat> as a child, my impression of my mother, and I loved her then, I was so close to her then as now, but my impression of her was very limited and, and incomplete. And in the memoir, I write about how in America, I was able to understand depths of her experience as a mother of her of who she was really because in Vietnam she was a shadow of who she was to me she couldn't practice medicine unless she were to leave the family and practice in the delta that's uh, right directed by the government then and because my father was such a figure such a an outsized figure and so beloved by his friends and surrounded by friends and because my mother was I guess, more introverted and not fully practicing. I never got a chance to see her work. I didn't really see that side of her. And then 
in America, she went through medical school again mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. residency again. Yeah. And through all that while raising us as a single mom. So I, I was able to see who she was and, and how strong she was to be able to do all that. So I, in a way, having that recollection of how I saw her and comparing that to what I know of her now, I think was something that I really wanted to bring out because I think I also got a chance to interview her in more detail. So I got more of her thoughts about the boat escape and a refugee experience and, and how she settled in the States. So yeah, it was important to me to be able to do that because I think I felt like that's a, an aspect of my growing up that is so significant and it's been formed, I guess, how I see yeah. stories and how stories yeah. are incomplete, how stories are never really fully told un unless you excavate and get to know them more and how stories can be masked or hidden, as was the case with my mother when she was living in Vietnam. Yeah, it's like you just follow threads and it's like one thread at a time, but it's never really like the whole tapestry, right? No, yeah. I mentioned your mother and your impression of her because in your, when you uh, escaped Vietnam and you went to, was it Indonesia first? Galang? Galang and then Bataan. So as much as an outsized figure as much of an outsized figure your father was i felt like in those stories in that part of your story your mother started to figure more right because she was the one in bataan in particular it really like struck struck me because your mom was pregnant and yet she was still like helping ration the food because there wasn't enough and everything and it gave me the impression that the, the resilience of you as a child, right? Do you think that, who do you think you owe your resilience to when you were a child? Like you seemed, as you said, it, it sounds bad, but you weren't really that affected when you were playing with kids. You were like right. having fun, like playing with the Coca-Cola straw and the ants and whatever. But do you think, is it because your mother was like very stoic and resilient at the time? Like, how do you remember her during those times? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where resilience really comes from. I think that certainly part of it would have come from my parents and, and seeing them react to adverse circumstances in this way. My mom was very, very active in Bataan. She was teaching English and, and in Galang as well. She was teaching English because her English language skills were quite, quite good. Um, so, and it was also, it also allowed us to get out of the refugee camp. We were one of the rare refugees that got a chance to go to Manila. And I think I wrote about how we got a chance to eat pizza for the first time. Oh my gosh, that was um, funny. <laughs> so, and that was as a result of my mother teaching English there with a Filipino English teacher that was teaching at the camps. Or to the Philippines, but also in, to Vietnam. To as Vietnam, well. right, right. Yeah, That's really yeah, the so... reason why I'm interviewing right now. <laughs> well, I just, I still can't believe that you were there just yeah. years after you left. I um, know. So as I mentioned, catching up the listeners. So I was telling Tuan that my mother and my stepdad and my brother lived in Saigon from 1989 to like around 1995 for work. 
And for my mom put up a school there in Saigon, a play school, which I think exists, still exists now. Of yeah, course. Which I'm going to see if I can check out. It's yeah, really I'll... <laughs> <laughs> but the connection is just so... So the places that you mentioned in the memoir, like the roundabout, which you mentioned is not there anymore. I can't believe it. Yeah. yeah, but it's just a testament to how progressive Vietnam is now as a country, like in terms of industry, in terms of, would you say it's unrecogni unrecognizable from the Vietnam that you left when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say unrecognizable. I think that there are elements that I can always rely on to, to think back and remember the time that I was here. But it has changed so much. It's changed even from the time when I first came back. And I think I wrote about that a little bit as well, is that I think there's a lot more sort of high rises and developments, bridges and roads. A lot of trees are gone now. <laughs> or yeah. Trees are, are changing into sort of wider avenues. So yeah, it's changed so, so much. And it's a mixture of feelings for someone who lived here as a child as well, right? I think in on the, on one on the one hand, I think you want to celebrate that it is developing so quickly and that means a lot more folks are more prosperous and can have a kind of more comfortable lifestyle here. Yeah. But there's also the flip side of that where like the kinds of natural beauty of the city and the the things that kind of are accessible to to everyone are erased pretty quickly. Even just the past and heritage and cultural kinds of sites are are, are changing and experiencing erasures pretty pretty haphazardly and pretty quickly. So it's been an interesting experience here. I, I would say I'm so glad that I moved here when I moved here because some of the elements of the of my childhood like in terms of streets and yeah. treat and so on are gone. So at the very least, I was able to come back. And my first come my first visit in 2007, it immediately like brought back all of the memories of, of my childhood. But if I had waited another 10 years, oh wow. I don't know if it would have happened. Because I think that the streets that I was that my cousin was driving me through, yeah, those are so changed and so altered now that I think I would have really been sad at not having that experience of certain streets being like oh my gosh this yeah. was we bicycled through this or my or my dad took me through this so many times in my childhood but those streets are changed now so yeah i can actually relate to what you say you're saying about the trees because those were very unique features of the saigon that i've also witnessed i haven't been back there since I think the last time I went back was 2003 or something. But so my memory of Vietnam is like, yeah, like you're driving through the road and there's these massive like centennial trees that they yeah. maintain, right? To be part of the, to be part of the infrastructure. And I've always loved that. And yeah. <laughs> to know, just hearing you like, oh no, there are less trees now. And I'm like, oh my God happy for the progress as you said but like nostalgic for for the beauty of those trees back then which brings me to the concept of because you brought it up too let's talk about return the concept of returning as an immigrant right because that 
a lot of Filipinos are also have also immigrated to the U.S. and other parts of the world. Not everybody returns, right? And most of the time, people who are like you, who came to the U.S. at a young age or were born in the U.S. at a young age, it's not it's not the usual story when you follow the stories, like even in memoirs. It's not the yes. usual story to return, and you return. So that's a very interesting aspect of the memoir. Was this always, has this always been, do you think, in the cards for you? Or was it because of your father returning? I'm going back to the to father issues again. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think you um, likely returned mostly because your father had returned? No, that's not the reason. Um, even though that's uh, a wonderful, lovely uh, side benefit was that I got to see my father um, as he was in some ways and as he's become now that he's a dual citizen and back and forth between Vietnam and America. I think that you're right. I think that there are a lot of memoirs, especially immigrant memoirs, are about adjusting, assimilating to the States yeah. and difficulties and challenges with that. And I felt like there's been so much written about that that I didn't want this memoir to be about that. Mm-hmm. It is to some degree indirectly. Like I think there's a couple of sections where I talk about are the expectations, especially of locals here, the thoughts that anybody who comes back from America is going to be wealthy and yes. successful. That's not the reality at all. Right? That's right. So, so I do write about that a little bit, but I really wanted to focus on what it's like to come back to a place that you've been exiled from and have been nostalgic for most of your like young adulthood or childhood even. Yeah. Uh, and and what it feels like to encounter that landscape, that geography and that urban kind of setting and reconcile the present with the past in that way. Because it is jolting. I think and I think it's jolting for me, but I I would say for many of my parents' generation, it's even more so, and it's even traumatizing because I think they have idealized and made into uh, such a, a, a perfect rendition, I think, of their past here, which is what I do as well. But that's the sense of loss when they come back is is too much. And I think a lot of my parents' generation, I've heard stories of parents saying to their kids, like, fine, move back, <clears throat> stay there for a while, but I won't be coming to visit you because it's too much for me to encounter the city and the country as it is now, regardless of how developed it is, how comfortable it might be. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to focus on that. And I wanted to write about how I think people like me who were exiles and have come back in some ways have a kind of unique perspective on location and place and on home and on identity. So I, <laughs> so I wanted to to write about that perspective um, as yeah. it's both it's been both incredibly rewarding but also been quite sad in some ways to encounter one's past altered so suddenly right so suddenly yeah and so and then I would say I built a kind of a second life here um, mm-hmm. with my family and with settling down that is different from my childhood past and so that is something to think about and write about as well. I like that term second life because if you haven't, if, if you were someone who has never experienced 
what it was like to be born and grow up in one place that you really consider home and then be uprooted and also be forced to consider that place home, that kind of tension that, that will forever exist is quite alien, right? It's not normal. When you think of home, you think geographically, right? Yeah. You, you think, of, oh, the house I grew up in and whatever. And like you and me, we, we no longer really have that because even if you, know, you went back to Vietnam, but it's drastically changed. Right. So it's not the same place that you call home. And so I appreciated that you said second life because it's, yes, you return to the place where you were born, but it's a different life altogether. There was really yeah. nothing to return to, right? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You're right. I think our notion of home is so different as people that have immigrated, that are displaced in some sense. And in some ways, it's actually more close to the experiences of people nowadays too i think that there is a lot of displacement or future displacement yes. to, to happen That's um fractured right. sense of <clears throat> as that kind of being torn from location from community is happening so so frequently and so i mean i find that when i was in america i built for myself even like in my kind of solitude and even in trying to assimilate and all that, I built for myself a kind of memory and kind of sense of home that I kept of, of my childhood in Vietnam. And it's stayed alive with me here today, even as I come back, right? right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now that I'm here, I know that kind of home of memories is not the same as what I encounter every time I go out in the roads here in Saigon. And it's in some ways it's saddening but it's also something that i think i i treasure at the same time right that yeah. we that we have uh the capacity to be nostalgic to be inaccurate with our memories but that we have the capacity to remember in this way and it, it makes us who we are it makes us it keeps us grounded and human even even if the places that we left and we were torn from in some ways has changed and altered and, yeah you know it, and feeling nostalgic or having those memories is the benefit of having a life, uh, having a, me a meaningful life, right? And I'm wondering now, just through this conversation about memory and a memory that no longer exists in geographically, but will always be true and, and valid for us, right? I wonder if that was what drew us to a creative life, to become writers. Because being a writer or being an artist is a great way to capture that yeah. sort of world that will never exist anymore except in our inside us, except in our memory and in our like being, right? So let's talk about that, being a writer and a creative lifer, as we call it in talking writing. You were a writer long before this book. Like, what were the stirrings? Like, as a kid, were you, like, writing a lot as well? Or did it come later? I think I came to understand America and understand my memories of Vietnam through literature. So mm -hmm. I think that when I was growing up in America and reading Rod Dahl and C.S. Lewis and fantasy books here and, and some classics here and there, but just any kind of books I could get my hands on. And I realized that I think it's in through it's through language and it's through 
good books that I was able to develop and uh, an understanding and a love for like imaginary worlds, but also the worlds around around me, right? Or worlds that I can recall and remember. Yeah. So I would say, I think for most of us who call ourselves writers, we were writers way long before we actually wrote our first short story. I think we were writers when we became good readers. And I think I read my way into understanding sort of American culture. And I read my way into understanding Vietnamese diaspora. It became available. First popped up and I read my first Andrew essay. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. There are people that are writing and thinking about the things that had always troubled me and they're putting into language. So I think that came way before. And then yeah. I I knew that I had to make a living somehow. So I became a, an English literature teacher mm-hmm. and that kept me close to books and literature, things that I yeah. love. And in the meantime, I, I wrote as much as I could or here and there, wrote plays in college, wrote, wrote short stories. And, and I think it wasn't only, it wasn't until I was able to get a sabbatical year that I, that I could get a full manuscript going and think about completing something like a book. And as I mentioned before, when I did that, I wasn't sure what form it was going to be in. Like I wrote a couple of short stories during that year and I wrote a blog. Like yeah. it was, wow. it wasn't, I didn't really know what it was going to manifest itself in until a couple of months into it. And I was like, ah, oh, I think there's enough about my family's story to try to write a memoir. And I was going to, I asked you this a while ago, or I told you this, that I think yeah. you would still be a writer, whether or not you got published, right? Or, mm-hmm. well, basically like you write not because you want to be published, although yes, please, you should be published, <laughs> keep publishing. But you, as a creative lifer, as I said a while ago, you do it for the love of it, but let's try to make sense of it. Like in your own words, right? Why do you keep writing? It's a way for me to understand myself and understand the world. And I don't think there's anything that's similar for me. I mean, I think that when you put something into language, and I think also the concerns that I have, the interests that I have, even in living here in Ho Chi Minh City, is that unless I record this somehow, it's not going to exist. And I think your initial question is exactly pertinent to the task of a writer and what a writer wants to do. It's that fear, I think, that the world around you, the people around you is not going to exist uh, in the future. And so you have to capture that in language somehow. And I think that's the pull of the memoir to some degree, but also essays and short stories. I think that Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, is criminally underwritten about at least in, in terms of English. Like I, I haven't read enough Vietnamese books and literature to make a conclusion about that, but I can definitely say just in the English language, there's just not enough about the city that I live in. And it's a fascinating city. And it's got so many stories in it that it would be such a loss if it's not captured in language somehow, right? So, so I think part of the drive for me is that un- unless... I do it unless I get it into language somehow. It's not going to exist. And it won't exist in the future. We know, we know that things change. We know that cities and countries and people pass away and change. And it ought to be preserved and relived in some fashion through language. And of course, I feel the same way about the Philippines, right? And I think the added layer there for us is 
let's face it, the dominant narrative is in English. And mm. if it's not in English, then it doesn't exist literally in the global lexicon. And that's just the sad reality of it. Yeah. And so representing or um, writing in, in English, whatever genre it is, and representing Ho Chi Minh, Saigon, or Manila, Philippines, or Iloilo, Philippines, my mom's hometown, that's very important. And I, I share that drive, and, and I'm glad that is your that resonates with you as well. And talking about, I, the last thing is that we're both bilingual. And in the memoir, you mentioned that your father really struggled because he culturally and in terms of the lexicon, linguistically, he just couldn't, he couldn't relate. So do you think that, uh, what is the, how do you reconcile, not the erasure, but the exclusion of non-English speaking countries like like Vietnam and the Philippines like how do you reconcile that or what are your thoughts on that after having written your memoir you mean the exclusion of that in the the American consciousness or or like the, the world I guess the world even not just the American consciousness right but the world also like if you can't adjust to the dominant language that's yeah. it it's like you can't yeah. <laughs> it's like you're out <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I haven't lived in America in a while, but even just reading about, as an English teacher, reading about book, limiting books that should be taught because of certain subject materials that it's about, it's like it, 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 the, the impression I get is that there's a concern with, with these kinds of narratives, right? Invading the American space and the American school systems for conservative places and locales. So yeah, I don't know if there's a way to reconcile that. I think that for me, there's already a kind of loss to some degree when you are writing about a location place that is deeply steeped in its own language, like Vietnam and Vietnamese, and then translating it. So, so for example, like the title Remembering Water is only going to be understood to some degree really well by somebody who understands Vietnamese because they know that I'm translating the Nhe Nuk into, into English. So I think there's already a, a loss there, but I think that there's something so crucial and important about trying to capture and honor and present the different kinds of experience that, that we have within our geographies, the monsoon season here, and how that's experienced by people that live here, and and the kinds of just the kind of like everyday experiences is so is so crucial, and I think that. Even if there is a bit of a loss in the translation into English, it's such a worthwhile project and it's so crucial. And it's the language that gave me an understanding of my memory as well as an understanding of the place that I was growing up in America at the time. So it's capable, there's possible to approximate, to try to capture in some fashion in a fairly flexible language. And also to alter it. Like we, we change English with with other cultures and other languages, they infuse and, and they change, like people know how to pronounce pho now, right? So like, like they're, these are, these become part of the lexicon and it becomes, it, it alters and it shapes the language just as immigrants that come to America shape the culture mm -hmm. of what it means to be an American. And on that note, do you have 
future projects, uh, future book in the works, or is it just like fatherhood time right now? <laughs> it, yeah, it's fatherhood time right now. I'm working on short stories right now that are set primarily here in Vietnam. So I wanted to write a bit more about that and about just what a person's experience is, is like in Richmond City specifically. So yeah, I'd love for there to be a second book in the works based on short stories. So, I, so yeah, I'm enjoying the writing of fiction. It, it is a little bit more freeing. You don't have to validate. <laughs> you don't yeah. need to validate. Yeah. You know? Exactly. You don't, you don't have to worry so much about family members and, That's and right. their representation in, in your memoir. <laughs> As characters, right? <laughs> yeah, that that's the only way, like, I think anybody can write about real people in their memoirs if they think about them as characters. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just paralyzed with, like, a mixture of guilt and <laughs> dread or something. But, yeah, hopefully more stories come. Like, you, you write more stories, whether fiction or nonfiction. Definitely, we'll look forward to that. And I thank you very much for spending time with us to talk about your book, which is thank available so right now on Amazon. Um, what other platforms is Remembering Water um, available Amazon, in? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and I'm doing an audiobook. So I'll finish with an audiobook this summer of it. So that'll be on there as well. Perfect. But then we have... An extra of you already reading an excerpt of your book. So we got to jump start on that. <laughs> so thank you as well for that. Thank you so much, Neva. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And um, I wish you and your wife and your son well. Until next time, Tuan. Bye. Bye, Neva. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the rss.com page of this podcast or visit talkingwriting.com donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com.